As we continue in our Advent series today, we're in Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and the sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love which he, with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Therefore, remember that at one time you, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of the promise, having no hope without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace and making reconcil- and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Last week we began this Advent series with Pastor Jason speaking and The topic and the title of his message was The Promise Has a Name. And he took us back to the book of Genesis, chapter 3, where we hear the promise for the first time, the promise of the gospel, which tells us, as he told the serpent, that the woman's offspring shall bruise your head and your offspring shall bruise his heel. It was a promise to redeem a people, to save a people. Many rose up, as Pastor Jason told us, in the intervening time, and people wondered if this was the deliverer, if this was the one, the fulfiller of the promise. And time after time, again and again, they found that it wasn't. They were only types. They were only pictures of the true reality that was yet to come. Flawed pictures of that true reality because all of them failed to some degree or another. 
And then Matthew, in the book of Matthew, gives us the name of the one who will be true, the true deliverer, the true fulfiller of the promise. And that's the title and the topic and the umbrella of the series. We've used that text where it says in Matthew chapter 1, she will bear a son whose seed is in Adam. That's not in the text, but that's the inference. Whose seed is in Adam. And his name is Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Second Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 20, as Pastor Jason closed the service last week, he gave it to you. And that text says that all of the promises of God are yes in Christ. All of them come to fulfillment there. That very first promise and all the succeeding promises that were given. And all of the types that rose up were all pointing to that fulfillment, to that um, culmination of the promises in Christ. Jesus is the true Israel of God, and in him all the promises come true. And over the next weeks, we want to talk about more of that promise to save his people from their sins. We want to look at three different aspects of that saving that happens because of the one who came, Jesus, whose name was Jesus. First of all, he saves us from the penalty of our sin. We'll talk about that this morning a little later. Second thing that we want to talk about is that he saves us from the power of our sin. In other words, we after we have come to Christ, we now have a new power to not give in, but to resist sin and to fight against it. We'll talk about that. And thirdly, we'll find that he saves us also from the presence. So the penalty and the power and ultimately the presence. Look at the text this morning. I want to show you where all three of those promises, because this is the text that we're going to be in over these weeks, the text that we read this morning. That's why I wanted the whole chapter to be read. But first of all, we will base the fact that he saves us from the penalty of our sin, and we'll come back to that in a moment in verse 3, where it says, we were by nature children of wrath. By nature, we were children of wrath. We needed to be saved from the penalty of our sin. And then it goes on to say, but God. And we'll talk about that. Secondly, the power of our sin. If you go down into verse 10 next week, we will talk about this. It says there in the text, for we are God, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them that we should experience a new power and appropriate a new power to walk differently. And then thirdly, it says in this text, a glorious promise that I'm looking forward to. In fact, I'd like to jump ahead almost to it this morning, but you find it in verse 5, and God is going to one day free us from the presence of sin altogether. It will be gone. There will be no impulses in our lives to sin. I hope you look forward to that day. I hope when you sin that it causes you to long for a day when that will never happen again. Long for a day when all the brokenness will be gone and you won't even have the impulse to sin. You won't be tempted to sin. We will be freed absolutely and completely from the presence of sin which we have no comprehension now of what that is. 
no comprehension at all. But the text that I, I base that on is verse 5, where it says, By grace you have been saved. And then it goes on to say, So that in the coming ages, not, not the age we're in now, we're in the present evil age now, but in the coming ages, he will show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. In the coming ages, there's a day that's coming where that will be a reality. And one of the kindnesses he will express and extend to us is that sin will be completely gone from our lives. That's a glorious future that we have to look forward to. And all of that is salvation. We talk often about that if you're in in other settings, we talk about it on Sunday morning, but particularly I would encourage you if you're not part of a small group on Sunday mornings, we have those small groups for adults. We have them for children. We call it Sunday school, but we have groups where we talk a lot about this idea that salvation is a whole package of things God does. And so when it says in that scripture, he will save his people from their sins, it is not just saying from the penalty, but from, from the, uh, um, from the power of it as well as the presence of it. All of that is what salvation is. All of that is the salvation that's promised. All of that is what was the promise of Genesis that Matthew picks up and tells us the name of the one who will accomplish it. We will be justified. We will be progressively sanctified, change more and more into the image of Christ in this life. And one day we will be glorified. We will be made perfect and we will be freed completely from the presence of sin at that point to go on and experience the immeasurable kindnesses of God throughout all eternity. That is what we have to look forward to. That's the promise that we have way back in the book of Genesis that that now today we can talk about because of Christ, because we have a picture and we have a focal point to see where that promise is is fulfilled. All the promises are yes in Christ for his people. That's a key point. All the promises are yes in Christ for his people. Now, who are his people? It's not for everyone. All the promises are not yes in Christ for everyone, but for his people. And who are they? They are those who have chosen to accept his offer of amnesty, the offer of amnesty from the king of the universe. Those who see their sin and those who desperately run from their sin to cling to a savior. Those are his people. And I believe the majority of us here in this room today are his people. That you have have acknowledged your sin, you have seen your sin, and you are clinging to the savior this morning. And so the goal of my series is twofold, really. First of all, it is that, that his people, the majority in this room, will see more of the glory of that salvation. That you will see more of the dimension of that salvation and the magnitude of that salvation. And you will do what it admonishes us to do in verse 11 of this text. If you look back to the text, it says, after he's talked about all of those glorious three things that happen when he saves us from his sin, it says, therefore, remember. And my hope is that you will remember. You will remember 
what you once were, anew and afresh. And it will spur you on to keep on keeping on in this journey of the Christian life. It will strengthen your heart and your soul as you remember. And then for those who who may not be his people who are here today, you have not acknowledged your sin and realized your sin and run to the Savior. And he is not the treasure that he ought to be to you. You don't see him as glorious thing and person that he is. That, That over these weeks, God will move upon your heart and show you your sin, but also show you the remedy of a Savior who is worthy of your allegiance and has wonderful promises as you embrace him. So that's where we're headed in these days. Today, I want you to to go with me now to the first, the promise that God will free us from the penalty of our sin. That's the first part of the promise. And and remember what he he does when he does that, when he takes us away and, and takes the penalty of our sin away. Remember that the just wrath of God gets replaced with the kindness of God. That's what happens when he takes away the penalty, when he, when he removes that penalty from us, that barrier that keeps us from him and from hope, that the just wrath of God is replaced with kindness. That's no small thing, folks. It's no small thing that, that God can move away from just wrath. We think of wrath oftentimes as an uncontrolled kind of fury. The, you know, the wrath of your mother or the wrath of your father, the, that kind of... But the wrath of God is different. Even the wrath that one day will come, even the punishment that will come to those who, who have not had their penalty of their sin removed from them will be a just wrath. And though I think there will be weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth, as Scripture talks about, I think there will be a deep sense also that justice has been served. Even in those who perish, there will be a sense in which I am getting the just due, the just wrath of God for my sin. But the glorious good news is we don't have to. The glorious good news for the people of God is we don't have to experience that wrath, even that just wrath of God. But God has made a way that it can be replaced by kindness, by by kindness that is extraordinary, the scripture says, the extraordinary, extravagant kindness of God through all ages forward. Now, let's look at the course of of why wrath is a part of the picture. Look with me at chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. Just listen to this text for a moment. Really hear this text. Really hear the condition of why the just wrath is at one time upon everyone. Here's what it says. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among among whom we all once lived. All once lived. That's all inclusive. Every one of us here and everyone on the face of the earth once lived here. 
once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature, by nature, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Here we see it. Several things about our sin, and I want to talk about that, because part of remembering is remembering where we came from. Part of remembering is remembering our our sinful nature, our sinful state, and what God has brought us out of. First of thing that it says in that text is we were sinners by nature. We were sinners by nature. Look there it says, we're by nature children of wrath. Disobedience was in our spiritual genes. We don't have time to talk about it here, but it was imputed to us through the sin of Adam. And, and we just had absolutely bad spiritual genes. They were all bad. And we were by nature, by nature, by the very person that we were if, when we were outside of Christ, objects of God's just wrath because of our sin. He also says in this text that we were dead. It says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. One has said it this way, we had no living spiritual nature to incline us to do anything for the glory of God and in reliance on his power. We had nothing in us, no spiritual nature to incline us to do anything for the glory of God and reliance upon his power. Everyone, everyone is in that state at one time in their life. Everyone on the face of the earth. Therefore, I come to this conclusion, and I will talk about it here a bit, but listen. I come to the conclusion, because we are sinners by nature, because we are dead to righteousness and faith, that all we could do, all you could do at one time in your life, was sin. All you could do was sin. That's how bad it is. That's why it is the just wrath of God. Upon everyone, not just a few, not just the worst of the few, but on everyone. Because all we could do at one time in our life is sin. Let me support that. Let me give you something underneath that so it's not my words. A text that I use as a definition of sin, I think a good definition of sin. We talk about it a lot. We use it a lot. But it's 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 31. And that text, many of you could quote it to me, it says, so whether we eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to what? The glory of God. So whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, all inclusive, the mandate and the command is that whatever we do, we are to do it to the glory of God. And to the degree that we do not do it to the glory of God, the scripture says, all have sinned. Because they've fallen short of the glory of God. That's what Romans chapter 3 and verse 23 says. All have sinned. Isn't it interesting that God would, would conclude that sentence by adding the words, for all have fallen short of the glory of God? That was not just something he tacked on to make the sentence a little longer. It's because that was the heart of what sin is. What sin is, is not living and doing things for the glory of God. 
And so the essence of sin, the root of sin, is to not do things for the glory of God in reliance upon his strength. Romans 14.23 goes on to talk about that. It says, whatever is not of faith, or it infers, whatever is not of faith is sin. Whatever is not done in faith is sin. And the definition of one outside of Christ is that they are not doing it in faith. They don't have faith. All anyone can do without a Savior. I say it again. All anyone can do without a Savior, without the Savior, without the Savior whose name is Jesus, is sin. All that any of us did, all of us inclusive, again, I include myself, all that any of us did outside of a Savior, Jesus, was sin. Romans 8.8 says, those in the flesh, those in the flesh, which means those outside of Christ, those who are doing in their own strength all they can do, those in the flesh cannot please God. Another text, Romans chapter 3, verses 9 to 12, says this, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. None. None. No one outside of the promise does anything but sin. Does that catch you? Why did I think twice and even a third time before I decided to say that as often as I said it this morning and at other times. Why is there a catch when we go to make those kinds of declaratory statements? What is it that causes that hitch in our step as we hear those words? I think it's because we look out and we see people who don't claim Christ In fact, people who may say, I'm an atheist, I don't believe in God at all. And yet they seem to do good things. They seem to do decent things. And I would say to you up front that there is a sense in which the common grace of God, just the common grace of God, comes to us at times through unbelievers. God uses unbelievers, even though I believe all they really can do is sin, to bring common grace to us. Goodness, God's goodness to us. He uses those instruments. But I think the reason there is a hitch and a catch in our step is because we really don't understand the root of sin. And more importantly, we don't understand. We don't understand how detestable it is to God. How detestable sin is and how it is such an affront. It is cosmic treason against God. That's what sin is. And and to deny him is the root of that sin, to deny God. And that's what the definition of an unbeliever is. He, he, He denies God and all that he is for us in Christ. He doesn't 
understand that glory. He, it has no comprehension to him because in the, in the New Testament, one of the things that brings us to faith, in fact, it's part of our existence statement out of the book of Corinthians, that one of the things that happens when a person comes to, to life in Christ is they begin to see the glory of God in the face of Christ. They begin to recognize the glory of God. They begin to acknowledge the glory of God. And the definition of an unbeliever then is that he doesn't acknowledge the glory of God. And so everything that does not acknowledge the glory of God, though it may on a horizontal level look good to us, does not look good to God. It does not look good to him. It does not please him. The root of sin is a denial of God and his glory. So the conclusion that we come to is we were all once children of the just wrath of God. Just. And there's a reason that God is just in it. I'll come to that in a moment. I'll talk about it in a moment. But the wonderful promise, this is, this is what's wonderful about the text. After we hear those heavy things, and they are heavy, don't minimize those. Do not minimize what God's estimation is here in the book of Ephesians. I mean, we, we are by nature sinners. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. We are spiritually dead And we can't do anything in relation to God but sin in that context. That's what it says. And all of us were there. And all who don't know Christ are there today. But then the glorious promise in verse 4. Look. Look at it. Some of the, the most glorious words of all Scripture. But God. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive with Christ. He, he opened our eyes to see his glory and to love his glory and to cherish his glory and want to reflect his glory. That's a monumental change. It is the difference between an unbeliever and a believer. Right there the heart of it around the glory of God. Now, let me just for a moment say something that I say often and and needs to be heard. We need to see these kinds of things. We, We need to see these kinds of issues from God's perspective or we really won't understand the gospel. You see, Christ's coming was about vindicating God's name and his glory. The death of Christ is about the glory of God being upheld and vindicated. And why does it need to be? Why does the name of God need to be vindicated? Because back there in that promise, remember the promise? Way back there's a promise. And inherent in that promise that we read about and the fulfillment of of that promise, his name is Jesus and he will save his people from their sins, is the danger that God might defame his glory 
by doing that. That he might some diminish his glory by, by winking at sin and overlooking sin and not allowing his just wrath to have its due. You see, it's important for God to do that. The just wrath of God is about God's honor, about his name. And so God, in all eternity past, devises a plan where his glory can be upheld and our sin can be forgiven. Where God can be rich in mercy because of his great love which he loved us when we were dead, make us alive together with Christ and free us from the penalty of our sin without dishonoring his name, without dishonoring his glory. That is no small thing. But if you see your sin as small, then the danger is you see it as a small thing. I hope this morning that you understand that Sin is no small thing. And the fact that we have a but God in Scripture is no small thing. And that all that Christ did and came to do is about the vindication of God's name and the saving of his people. All of it. So this morning, we come to this table. We're going to receive these elements this morning. And I want you to hear this now. Listen before we come. Therefore, remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Remember, remember that. Remember where you came from. And if you're here this morning and you're still there, accept God's offer of amnesty. Accept it. And come to this table this morning and rejoice that you also are no longer without hope. We're going to receive those el- these elements this morning. And let me read to you another text before we do that that has the same theme of remembrance. Paul writes, For I received from the Lord what I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup, After supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Remember this morning. I'd like for those who are going to help us this morning to serve these elements to come. Let's pray together. Father, I pray this morning that we don't come lightly to this table because this table doesn't speak of light things. It speaks to us weighty things, weighty things like the honor and glory of your name and the removal of the penalty from us. How those things can coexist together and it all centers in that your son 
took the just wrath of God that should have been ours for us. He took it so that it will not fall upon us. It will not fall on us who look to Christ and the refuge that he provides. That's what we remember as we come. We remember where we were, but we also remember where you brought us and how that takes place. Father, this morning we come in hope. We come with great joy to this table. Not lightly, not not flippantly, but joyfully. In Jesus' name, amen. The elements will come to you in your pew. And again, you're welcome if you can live under the invitation to receive them with us. And, and we'll do that together at the, at the conclusion of everyone having the elements this morning. Again, this is, this is his body. And he told us every time we eat of it to remember.
There's a text out of Isaiah 53 that says, It pleased the Father to crush the Son. It pleased the Father to crush the Son. I think it speaks of the just wrath of God. It wasn't unjust. He was crushed for us. Take and eat because that crushing caused us to have the penalty removed. Christ. We ask again that you would take the element and hold it. We'll partake together.
Actually, as I shared a verse out of Isaiah 53, I gave you a bit of my own interpretation of that text. It actually says it was the will of the Father to crush the Son. That's where I get pleasure. In one dimension, it pleased the Father to do that. His will pleases Him. And the pleasure comes, I think, in that He can both uphold His name for Him not to do, He would not be God, to uphold His word, to stand by His promise and forgive our sin. That is no small thing. And from all eternity, again, it was the will of the Father to crush the Son to make it possible. This morning in my Sunday school class, we looked at Genesis chapter 3, which I quoted this morning also. But in that text, it says, the serpent's head will be crushed, but also that the seed of the woman's heel will be bruised. It was costly. There was, in the very beginning, the picture and the promise that it would be very costly to crush the head for the seed of the woman, for Christ. It was costly. It was dramatically costly. Remember the cost and rejoice in the outcome, take and drink and be grateful. I think an appropriate response to what we have just experienced in the word and in the sacrament is worship. Let's stand together and sing, Oh, come, let us adore him as our benediction. Come, let us adore Him. Oh, come, let us adore Him. Oh, come, let us adore Him, Christ the Lord. And again, Matthew said, His name shall be Jesus, for He will save His people from their sins. God bless you. You're dismissed this morning.